Hi, I'm Timothy Fitz, and this is Systems Live. Can you do it like any? Can you do it better? Can you do it again? Hi, I'm Timothy Fitz, and this is Jeff Lindsay, and we are. No. Systems Live. No, 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 no. <laughs> okay, or is that good it. enough? You do it. Hey, this is Systems Live. No, I can't do that. <laughs> okay, so uh, let's let's really quickly talk about what we've been doing. You know week. what we need to do? We need a robot voice say the intro, and then that would be that. Oh, like Rusty's game, Kill to Begin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we should probably we'll shouldn't use. Time. Yeah, we probably we'll shouldn't use Kill to Begin though. That's a little mm-hmm. a little more aggressive than our show. But also, we're not a space fighting game. Okay, so. Um, we're going to talk about what we've been working on. Yeah, yeah. Before we get into DevOps, which is a which is what topic. you're all here for. Uh, but we want to. Yeah, we just want to go over. So um, I had a weird. Yeah, I had a weird week. So I, I'm like in between gigs. I've been trying to work on uh, Oculus Rift software. Do you have one? Uh, I, it's in the. It's it's coming. Coming. I ordered I ordered a DK two the the second one and and to buy a DK one right now on eBay it's like six or seven hundred dollars which is like twice what they cost so I'm waiting I have I have friends who have offered to let me borrow them but I don't have any software that's quite ready for it mm. um but so the, the game that I'm working on is a procedurally generated planet um of course. Of course. Well, that's like actually like necessary to the core mechanic. I don't want to talk too much about the game itself yet. No, you don't. No spoilers. Well, it's just not. It's not really. You ready. don't even know what it is. Yeah, it's it's very it's very. It's I mean, like, I'm, I'm the idea stage is very fragile. I'm a big fan of build like an embryonic version of everything. Like everything I build, I always build yeah, like an embryonic prototype. version. It's not even necessarily a prototype. Like I'm going to evolve it into the real one probably. Unless I get two months in and go, wait, no, this needs to be abandoned and rebuilt from scratch. Mm. But um, but just like like like, not even an MVP, something that's even smaller, just something that anything works like the whole way through, um, just to start to get that initial validation and be like always shippable. Um, so I've been doing a lot of procedural uh, 3D content generation, which is a blast. It's really fun. I saw your trees. Yeah. They yeah. Look- Pretty good. Yeah, but now I'm so now I'm like building out a DSL, which is interesting because there's like like I know that half of the work on this project is going to just be tweaking and working on this and building out like this one algorithm, not algorithm, but like one DSL thing. Yeah, one one giant process to create these yeah. worlds from scratch, and most of the fun. Will you know, be you, what you've done, you realize you're basically working on an engine. Kind of, kind of, except that I'm, I'm developing the engine by building the game and then refactoring into an engine repeatedly. Okay, okay, okay. So. But, yes, yeah, I'm, I am trying to stay away from, from engine crafting because that is a personal problem. Like, I just, I, for most programmers, for a really. really long time, I would get stuck in the, like, I need to build this game, but first I need to build the perfect engine for it. And mm. so I got really good at engines mm. and not good at games. And I found out I just wasn't. I really enjoyed programming, so I like working on engines, but it wasn't long-term satisfying to get to the end of a project and be like, I have nothing yeah, concrete exactly. to show for it. And then the engines I was building you weren't getting a adoption. platform that does nothing. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I, I definitely wasn't great at platform evangelist, evangel- not even going to try and reset it, but, um, Devrel. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that's, yeah, so that's, that's what I've been working on. It's a lot of fun. Um. It's it's really interesting because this is what you do between jobs. A graph. Well, it's it's in the end sort of the job that I want to have. I mean, I really like the consulting and continuous deployment and pipeline, and and I see myself like 
building games, but building games in a, in a style. Like, the way that I build games will be fairly different from everyone I know. Oh, yeah. Totally continuous deployment. Everything. Everything. Continuous. Lean, lean game. Continuous. Lean continuous. Game. Continual improvement. Yeah. Continual. Dot, dot, dot. Yep. Um, so, yeah, that's, that is what I do in between gigs. Um, so I've had, like, a week to sort of focus on that. And then uh, next... Tuesday, Wednesday, I'm doing a workshop, so I have to, to go back to, to real life. I'm, I'm doing air quotes. I saw he did air quotes. Uh, and then also, I, I bought a Leap Motion after they announced the uh, SDK V2. Um, it's basically a Kinect. Um, and it, uh, you, when you, you sit in front of your monitor, and then you can like stick your hands out at your monitor and wave them around. And well, you it, do like sign. That's what you need to do is develop sign programming. It, it could totally work. It, it absolutely could. Um, so, so the first prototype was really just like a generic hand, roughly where your palm is and where it's facing, and then touch sort of input. So that you could roughly do touch input, but it's it's not it's vague. You can't like point to a place on the monitor and get it to accurately always point there. Um, so V two gives you bonal data. It gives you each of your finger joints. It gives you like a legit mesh for them, and then you can have things where there's like these like playgrounds where there's blocks. What is this device? Is this something that could eventually be on my phone? It's so small. It is. It's so much smaller oh, yeah. than a Connect. It's like I, it's like the first generation of thumb drives. Almost. Yeah, it's showing me. Yeah, it looks like a big thumb drive. Um, they can totally put that in a phone someday, and then you'll well, be sure, like this with your phone. Yeah, it's a light and a camera at the end of the day. I mean, I'm sure there's a processor in there right now, but that's all going to shrink. Um, and I don't know if there if there needs to be width, but yeah, this could easily go into a, can, a, a cell phone or a mobile device or a laptop. I feel like a laptop would actually be a lot better. Word, yeah, right there. Um, like this. So it's it's cool. It's it's still really rough. There's still a bunch of bugs with it, like uh, because it, it really is just a connect. So if you flip your hands upside down. Maybe half the time it doesn't know you did that, and it thinks that your hands are still facing down. Uh, and then when you like curl your fingers, it makes it look like you're breaking your bones in the, right. in the simulation because it's curling them backwards, yeah. which is very painful to watch. It's like it's it's not a huge bug; it doesn't really matter for a lot of things. But visually, it's so like you 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 have so much empathy react. for these yeah. like for these boxes and cylinders that yeah. represent oh, hands. Oh. Poor fingers. So that's that's what I've been up to. Wow, that's yeah, okay. Well, that's you. What about you, Jeff? <laughs> well, I've been writing a lot of software. Um, I'm really let's see. I released. Well, I'm I'm working on like tons of basically yak shaving kind of, but not really pointless things. Like I'm actually building components and being like, oh, I want to build this, but that it should be made of these things. So I've got this whole like backlog of projects. Um, and one in, in one of those things is actually a, a, a new version of, of Doku. But in that new version of Doku, I have like all these components that I want it to be made of, right? Um, a lot of that stuff's related to, if you've been following my work, Docker, console, um, stuff like that. Um, what did I do recently? So I made a thing. I actually mentioned it, I think, last week, execd, where I was working on it. But it was like an SSH server. Like I never, I didn't quite finish it. So I didn't really announce it, but then I tweeted about it the other day, and everybody's like, whoa, that's really cool, but I haven't really um, 
like really packaged up or like given good examples or demos or anything? So uh, you used to you used to do this all the time. You used to make little services and announce them and try and, and try and hype them. And I feel like you struggled. Like you would get a thousand adopters and then sort of peek out at that. Are you finding that that now that you've got like Doku and Flynn and a couple of like bigger open source projects that you're like starting to see a snowball effect that your little projects get a lot more attention and adoption right away? Um, I think I think they get they get more, but like adoption is weird because that means people have to actually use it, so it actually has to be you know useful and relevant to whatever people are doing right now. Like there's plenty of things that are people are like, oh that looks cool, I'll get around to using that. So you're getting more buzz, but to get adoption, the things you have to build have to be good enough. Yeah, it, like if you really want like real you know adoption, like kind of and it's spreading, people have to be able to have a need for it right now. And so there's a lot of stuff that I make that there's not, like, a need for it right now. Um, it seems like a lot of stuff I do is like that because it's I'm building stuff for a world that doesn't exist yet, right? So, um, but some of the components, which is the advantage of, like, doing things as components, is some of those components are useful now. And uh, one of the th- components that I've been working on, actually, I didn't plan on making this project, and I think I only started it a couple days ago, but it's sort of working, and it's not released yet, Um but it's called Configurator, and um, it's sort of like ConfD. I was a little surprised there weren't other things like ConfD. Can you explain ConfD really quickly? So, I mean, we'll talk about configuration management and things like ConfD and and NetCD, but in short, ConfD is basically a little daemon that you run next to any kind of application that has configured... Actually, I mean, it's designed to run on a host that may have many applications running and it will connect to either etcd or console uh, for configuration data and use templates and pull that data in from console or etcd and render the templates um, to configuration files and then reload whatever those services are that uses those configurations so that way you can um, configure your services via data in console or etcd Um, so that's and you do that by defining templates and stuff like this and so that's uh, I thought that was cool in theory because that was sort of like the idea that we were trying to do at, at Twilio and what um, Bulat was working on uh, that I thought was really cool and I wanted him to open source. I don't remember if it ever was, but um, as far as I know, ConfD eventually came out and it's the only thing that does anything like that. So I'm trying to t- take it to the next level. I was trying to use ConfD and ran into some problems and realized that there's a lot of stuff I don't like about it, so I just like did my own. So configurator thing. is a replacement for ConfD. <sighs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's an alternative. It's an alternative. Yeah. So what's different? Oh, so actually, so um, ConfD is built on the assumption of this classical kind of configuration mi- management DevOps mindset of like you're managing hosts, like it's even designed for like running. Rendering multiple configuration files, it itself has multiple configuration files, and you create a configuration file for every configuration file that you want to render, and um, and it assumes like you know directory structure and all this stuff, um, and it will pull in the data. You have to create these templates for your specific application, and so you can customize it to be however you want. So you can take like an existing nginx configuration and basically templatize it and say using the go template language which is kind of really frustrating i don't know how people stand it um 
but use the Go templating to templatize it, and then it will pull from etcd or now console. Um, and uh, and I would have thought that because both etcd and console let you watch in real time, like they let you watch values, that it would uh, update in real time. And people are complaining about this. I think it's okay that it polls. So Confi actually polls at an interval that you specify. Um, and, you know, whatever. Um, but uh, so it polls for updates and re-renders and configuration and reloads, whatever it is. So that's how ConfD works. It's pretty simple. Um, I ran into some problems because I was trying, I was taking this new approach. What I wanted to do was I don't just want configuration to be in console or at CD. I actually want um, full programmatic access to the entire configuration. Um, so I'm, I live in this world where there's like everything is an appliance, right? And everything has an API. And this concept of static configuration is really stupid, right? That's we all, all configuration management is a system to try and like fix that. We talked about this before. What I want is runtime configuration. I want to be able to change things at, at runtime. And this idea of having like a central configuration system is a step in the right direction, especially if you can update it and have things change. But um, so when you say central, you mean uh, on one host, or you mean distributed? Uh, distributed, but it's a centralized system, so it depends on a third party. Basically, everything now depend has a dependency on whatever you're using for configuration. Right. Um, whereas I would like the option, at least, to have a standalone version and be able to still configure it programmatically. I want to run Nginx and say, I want to change this value in the configuration, and I don't want to have to go in and edit a file and then restart and check the configuration, and, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. So what I ultimately wanted was, like, and I've been thinking about this for a lot of stuff, is, like, maybe an HTTP API that lets you configure. I mean, originally it was like, oh, it could be really simple because it's just a lot of time key value stuff. So if you just made it like an HTTP endpoint where you can like change key values, oh, that's real simple. Um, what what I found was though that I could actually model most configuration files in JSON. So I started building an nginx configuration like the most complex one I could, and and modeling it in JSON. And then I thought, well, uh, it would then be cool to have an HTTP interface that would let me access and change this JSON data structure. So it's kind of like if you've used OHI, which is Chef's like system profiler, it actually just gives you a bunch of uh, an object tree of information about that host. And you can actually drill in and say, oh, slash CPU, and it tells you information about the CPU. It's just the CPU key in the root structure. And you can drill in however deep you want and get a specific value. And pretty easily, like using curl, like get any value in the profiler. So you can do this with so you can do that um, with this configurator system, but you can also then change and add values and all this stuff. So the path is basically, um, it turns out there's a standard, it's called a JSON pointer, but it's basically like slash, you know, a key name, slash a key name, and if it's an array, then slash a numeric number uh, path name. So like slash zero, slash one, then slash, you know, whatever. Yeah. And uh, so it uses that, and then you can basically do uh, get uh, put to replace values. You can do a post to add to a value or merge a dictionary. You can do delete. So you can basically do every operation to this JSON data structure. So this JSON data structure is then also really easy to convert, convert into a uh, actual configuration 
uh, it's like almost easier than a template because it's sort of reverse template. And I was trying to do this with conf D and the and the Go templating stuff, but there was a bunch of stuff that made it really hard to do recursive things because it's really made for just like basic template like value replacement. Yeah. But I wanted to basically render the entire configuration file, which would require like this recursive nested thing, and I couldn't do it with conf D. Um, I submitted some issues and was like, okay, well, I'm just going to run into it. And I don't really need this any. Like, the things that I do want from this are easy to implement. So um, so what I came up with was, though, a generic um, a transform system, kind of like, like, what were they, XS, XS, XL? What were the XML transformer? Oh, man. XSLT? Yeah. Yes, that's yeah, it. Yeah, XSLT. Um, and... It's, it's kind of like that, but all it is is a program where you pipe in some JSON and the output is a configuration file. And so using something like Ruby, it's super easy to just like read the JSON and render. Like Nginx is pretty complicated, but it was still like it's like 50 lines of Ruby to just generate a generic configuration for. So you can do this for any configuration type, TOML, you know, YAML, anything that's not JSON. And, uh, and so that's what configurator does but then it also ties into console and etcd in the same way that but you don't have to right so i could run it without console or without etcd and run this alongside nginx and be able to programmatically change any value in the configuration Um, but i could then also tie it to console and then have that configuration stored and committed to console with every change as well as reference in sort of this template system inside the uh, JSON reference any other value in the key value store um, as well as a bunch of other stuff like files for example you want to upload uh, a certificate or something like that like you want to do your uh, you know whatever your nginx SSL you know it requires files this is always kind of a pain to set up it's going to reference a file on the system and this is where like uh, conf D kind of comes short uh, well, actually, I guess you could just create a configuration that is that file. Uh, but this is kind of gets into where people would use traditional like chef or something yeah. like that. Um, what I do is I have a, a directive. So when it says like SSL certificate cert or whatever, and it points to a path, the value for that in the JSON structure is a special like dollar sign file and then points to a path in whatever your store is. And the HTTP interface knows that that means that when you post a file, it's going to put that in console, and then when it renders the configuration, it's going to pull that out and put that in a file on the system, and then take that file path and put it in the configuration. So it actually makes... Um, uh, and imagine that now without console, like you can now like kind of interactively work with any of the files associated with your configuration um, a lot easier through this HTTP interface. Yeah, so you, you removed the file system abstraction because it's not useful yeah because i mean yeah because in in my world everything runs in a container and you don't want to be able to go into container and mess with the file system like it's on a lot of times you definitely don't have to do that you don't want to have to but it's very difficult and it's difficult because you shouldn't be doing that yeah at least in my world like that's how container like containers are best used this way to bring us closer to this world of runtime configuration and making everything appliances yeah so um with this i can run it with uh nginx and I don't need console, I don't need anything. I can have an HTTP interface and dynamically configure it however I want. It's not limited to some like 
specific template that I created. It lets me change any possible configuration. And if I want, I can hook it into console or at CD. Yeah, this, this would have been so useful for me. Um, so I, I, I hear that a lot. So I canvas, and then and then afterwards, I wrote an open source thing. You can go to my GitHub and see it. It's uh, called Zero Downtime Deploy, uh, ZD Deploy. Uh, so so the, a pattern that I keep seeing over and over again is like hard to... Uh, services that are hard to do seamless uh, failover or seamless upgrade um, instead of baking the complicated logic of like handing off the socket to a new process and doing all of that stuff uh, just have Nginx do it for you um, so in Nginx if you have a configuration file that's routing to like one backend and then you change the comp file route to a new backend and sig hup Nginx it's going to gracefully reload that um, and that, that pattern is really, really useful. So what I ended up doing at Canvas was writing a script that used um, Django's templating language to do Nginx configuration files, not because the configuration was changing dynamically, not, not what I would think of as configuration, but because every time we would start a new twisted process because of a code update, we would use Nginx to do the, the sick up and the graceful failover. Um, but it's so crazy to me that to do that, I have to write a template file and write my own logic and yeah. send this weirdo message after writing the file. And if the file write fails, the sig hub has weird... There's all these like all these extra steps necessary to do this really low-level, to me, communication. Um, and and what, what I... Well, I don't... like So configurator is nice, but what I really want is like the protocol that you just described to become a standard protocol that Nginx itself would just support. Oh, yeah. Like, I want Configurator the library that everyone just uses. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the idea is that eventually everything, you know, should be in a, having some sort of standard way to, to configure it at, at runtime. It's a higher level protocol than, than DSLs for everything. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I have no idea, like, maybe this could happen, you know, if this took off. I'm not betting on it because, you know, whatever. But um, I'm, I'm realizing that it's super flexible. Like, you... I mean, you can represent almost any configuration in JSON, and then all these operations, like standard operations, like you can then manipulate it via HTTP. I'm not even sure why I haven't seen more HTTP APIs that let you do this sort of direct manipulation of JSON data. I see. Yeah, yeah. Th- there are very few of those. That's for sure true. Um, there so are, yeah, there are some like nicer HTTP-based config APIs, but they're all really specific to the application or device in question. So nothing, nothing yeah, too generic. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, like most of the stuff that I've written lets you configure it via an API. And so it's always like a REST API is going to be very specific to the domain of that whatever it is. Yeah. Like Logspout. It's like manage routes. And so there's a route resource, right? I'm also surprised we haven't seen standardization between HTTP load balancers in like the basics. Um, so like if you if you have a load like you, you have a config that's like serve this static directory and then load balance other requests across two backends, totally basic. You have to learn how to rewrite that if you want to switch from like Lighty to Nginx or back or whatever. Um, and that seems crazy. Like why do I have to keep learning brand new languages? I get that things want to do you know extra stuff their own way, but like why why are we not trying to standardize here? It seems so obvious. Well, I I, I mean I, I guess my gut reaction is that like the people that are building like ops people sysadmin people are not necessarily standards type thinkers um and i'm not really either but i'm just i would at least like to go towards a convention to make certain things you know standard 
Yeah, um, I mean, conventionally, fine. I don't convention. Know how, yeah. I don't, yeah. I don't yeah. mean yeah. necessarily like a, a W3C yeah, 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 standard. Yeah. But like have some sort of like common. Yeah. Something. It also it also strikes me that like um, people are really uh, fans of things, and I mean that in like a sporting way. Like like they cheer for Engine X over Lighty, or they che- or vice versa. Like like uh, I noticed that there's a lot more um, us versus them, we versus you sort of mentality around software where like that doesn't make any sense mm-hmm. like choosing Lighty over Nginx is not a it, it shouldn't be a sports war <laughs> it, sh- it shouldn't be a, a my team beat your team kind of kind of discussion but I think I think the reason that it that it endears this sort of fandom is that you have to really go deep into these tools because they're so you have to commit yeah because they're like so complicated and there's no commonality yeah. if it was them. easy to switch between things you wouldn't you know, be as you know. Mm-hmm. You could be like, oh, I can experiment. I could try this new thing. Yeah, yeah. Like most places I have been have like one load balancer, and they won't one software load balancer, and they won't ever have another one because it's too expensive to have two different ones. And they've and already I think, I think learned that, all the nuances of their setup for that configuration. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And that that's that's really tough because then like that's that's ossification in your org. Like suddenly, like changing things becomes really expensive. Mm-hmm. Culturally and for all of the knowledge buildup. Um, so I don't know if this tool is configuration management. I guess it is. I mean, it's a form it of configuration replace, management. Yeah, it would replace Chef or Puppet for the things that you want to like manage through it. So I think it is. It's 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 very different. Though. Yeah, and it's not enough. Like but, you wouldn't want to just use configurator right now. No, I mean that's it's one piece of the puzzle, right? I mean, in, in that sense, like it's designed to be decoupled from, like, let's say, etcd or console, so you don't even need to use those, but you can if you want, because um, in a lot of situations you probably would want to have those, and it's you know you have maybe multiple instances and they share configuration. Um, there's another part, and I don't know if this will ever make it into configurator or if it'll be separate or what, but. I've seen this pattern a lot where people will create systems using, um, if they have Zookeeper or any kind of configuration, distributed configuration, they'll create a system of like uh, profiles of configuration so they could take a base configuration of key values, whatever, and then have different overlays that would change those values and then uh, dynamically assign profiles to a particular host because, again, host-based stuff. So you could basically... um, you know, temporarily in, in real time, make this this set of hosts see um, a slightly different version of the configuration, and then maybe remove that and it goes back to the default, or maybe layer a couple of things like this. Um, and uh, I've seen a couple of tools for Zookeeper, uh, but it seems like a common pattern. It could very easily be applied to this JSON data structure where you can say this is the configuration I want, and then now apply these so overlays. So cascading CSS style. Yeah. Well, although very, very, very few people actually cascade their style sheets. But, yeah. But it turns out, like, a lot of large-scale systems, people do want kind of cascading Yeah, I mean, you almost always have, like, here's the base image right. that has, that has like, your logging and your yeah. your defaults, so your, your SSH statement, etc., and then everything is, yeah. is a tweak from that. And the fact that I've heard too many horror stories of people going overboard with those systems means that people are using them. Maybe it's a bad thing, but it, it makes it... Because I think you can do this in, in um, uh, Chef, some sort of like 
cascading. Yeah, Puppet has that too, for sure. Yeah, and but it's really hard to sort of figure out where this configuration came from. I don't so know. I, I've never used this. That's like your personal experience. Yeah, um, that's just interesting because like I have, I think mostly in Puppet, but then I spent a couple months doing Chef stuff. So I would. I, mean, I, I try and I try and not expert in either. Use either. Um, although the thing is, I was really really excited when I learned about. Um, configuration management, but this was before it was popular. Um, CF Engine was like the well-known solution. I don't know. Do you know anybody that actually used CF Engine? Yes, um, I did. Uh, Einview was was CF. Uh, I want to say two, uh, maybe even one X. And uh, I hear three is out, and it's a it's a pretty big jump forward. Like it it's still actively maintained and competitive. Um, it's also, I believe, developed by the the guy who wrote the paper that defined the whole like we should do configuration management. It should look like this. Yeah. How would you describe the like core like philosophy of configuration management? Um, configuration is fucked. Here's a band aid. Um, oh, I'm sorry. That, that was that was maybe too insightful. Like what was the, the novel? Yeah. <laughs> Um, in, in hindsight, but in what so like what for example, if you were to just if you've never seen Chef or Puppet or heard of configuration management and you saw something like configuration engine, CF engine, what what would be like the like aha idea that it brought to everything? Um, yeah, I mean like one centrally managed uh, version controlled source of truth for the for the way to build a new um, instance from scratch. Right. Um, so, so repeatability in a, of in a kind of declarative. Because I mean, can you imagine pre-configuration management where people are like writing shell scripts to try and put things in the right place if they're doing any sort of automation at all? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, um, and then also uh, composability. That's the other big one. Like once you have two machines that look roughly the same, mm-hmm. you need composability primitives. And those again, it was shell scripts and ifs, and people were writing code from scratch to do this. Right. Uh, the thing that hit me was the whole like you're defining it in a declarative. You're saying this is this is the state that I want, right? And that was the whole like configuration is saying a configuration file, you know, in general, saying this is the state that I want it to be in. And to say to describe your entire system in a in a declarative way, and then defining hooks or systems of saying if it's not in this state, perform this until it be, you know goes into this state and so it, it was kind of cool because it remind, reminded me of kind of like open feedback systems cybernetics kind of like things where it's like this is the ideal it, it's a, a state seeking system right uh, if the state changes it does this thing until it goes into this state and I thought that was really cool which, which CF was really I believe not at least the way we used it mm-hmm. it, it really it did not hit that goal it was way more like Here's a set of steps that need to be applied. If they haven't been applied, do one. And here's a precondition. If the precondition isn't met, do these things. Um, so it was, it was it, I, like ideally you could build what you're talking about by writing preconditions and then statements. But in practice, what I saw a lot of was like if if uh, I did thing 37 is not a file in my home directory, then create that file and then do a thing. And, and it's almost like a make system, right? Yeah, yeah. It, and and, and in, like in, it failed in all of the bad ways that make failed, except, uh, oh, actually CF might have a hard tab requirement as well. <laughs> I may have actually had that. I don't know. I didn't, I, I had the, 
the pleasure of not writing CF at all. Like I would pair with ops people, but they would actually be the ones typing. So I did, I, my experience in it is a little weird for sure. I think I originally came across CF Engine when I was trying to find ways to, and this started my whole path down infrastructure land and platform as a service, trying to find ways to automate the management of systems of like a host so that I wouldn't have to, so that you could, so the key idea was one, uh, or actually what I was trying to achieve was auto-sustainable services. Didn't know what to call it at the time. I called it like um, open source, web services or something like that um public open source services pos i think was one <laughs> pause but uh so so the idea was i want to be able to run something as a service and make that service be open source and so that people could actually manage that thing at, in an open source way and in my early kind of naive um thinking from not having any experience was a system like that would let you do that because it puts the configuration of the system into the source control, which is in the same place, you know, that's open source. Um, so people could, and then you could automate, you know, whenever it's checked in, it would, you know, apply that configuration to the to the host. And in theory, no one would ever have to go into the machine, which is an ideal that even, you know, people have in, in production. That's why it's kind of funny, like all these things that I wanted um, just to, to like completely automate uh, auto-sustainable services is kind of what everybody wants now for like production systems. Um, so it's just, it turns out to be useful for me that a lot of these things that I started building and thinking about then is, is useful now. Um, I mean, it makes sense though. You were trying to be incredibly cheap about mm-hmm. running these services and shops are, are waking up and realizing and like, oh, if we, have, business if we have 10 or 100 yeah. times as many computers yeah. or 10 or 100 times as much ops stuff, now we have to automate. That's that's the one thing I really don't like about our industry is like we automate things um, well past the the last responsible moment. Like, oh, now that our business is tanking because we had to hire twice as many people to do all this manual bullshit work, maybe now we should think about solving this problem. So, I mean... Now, when you talk about DevOps, that basically means configuration management, like in the sort of, uh, I don't know, operation world, right? It's like you talk about DevOps, you're usually talking about Chef or something like that. Yeah. Um, which is completely wrong in, in many ways. Um, but it's kind of interesting that the configuration management itself is um, almost as. Uh, people's concept of configuration management is, is almost as bad as people's concept of DevOps um, because it's like these it's these core ideas and, and people kind of associate with these like solutions like Chef or Puppet which are you know have done great things like I'm not saying these things are, are bad except I don't really want to use them um, they uh, we're seeing them sort of eroded by these um, alternatives like you break down the concerns, like the, the problems that they solve into smaller problems. So like, um, you know, data banks or something like that is this concept of centrally, you know, shared state or whatever. Um, and that is per- goes perfectly into a zookeeper or an etcd or something like that. And then you have the actual, um, uh, you know, rendering of, of configuration files or something like that. And you have tools like ConfD and Configurator kind of... Um, 
uh, taking on that that concern. And so I like that there's these components that people can solve the problems of configuration management in a in a more composable way. Um, but uh, oh, orchestration. Yeah. What do you think about orchestration? I mean, I think the line between orchestration and the rest of configuration management and ops is like yet another just arbitrary line. Yeah. Because when I think configuration management, I'm thinking configuration, like state, declarative, da 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 Orchestration is almost by nature an imperative, like this is how, these are steps you take, right? And this is, you know, how you make things happen. I actually really hate the term orchestration. Like I don't see any... Um, I see a lot of commonality with the database world, but lack of understanding there. Like uh, a lot of configuration management tools, you specify the schema, but you don't specify a schema change. You just modify the schema directly. And like, I feel like at this point we know that specifying the schema change would be better than specifying the schema itself. Mm -hmm. But that's not how we develop. And so I feel like that's why we have an orchestration problem is because we, we treat these things as two like semi-unrelated problems when they're not. It's all mm-hmm. one, one bag. This, it's funny because uh, those migration change, like the whole thing is this, is this um, problem of software being defined, designed for like a static world yeah. where you don't change it that often yep. and going towards a world where everything is changing all the time, dynamically, programmatically. Yep. Um, and it's funny that we're, you know, think like things like migrations, like, first of all, migration should be a concern of the database, not the framework that you're using. That's kind of funny, right? Um, and, uh, and luckily, that they've been decoupled since, like, Rails made migrations really popular. Uh, but a lot of these things are, are slowly just um, stopgap kind of solutions for a world where all software is designed <laughs> to be, like, made to be changed at runtime, you know? Yeah, I, I see that as, like, a really higher-level trend um, where, like, the entire world is going, like, into faster iterations and faster iterations. And so, like, um, what what used to be acceptable, like, the two-year big-box retail de- deploy cycle is, is just dead. Like, the only people left doing that are operating systems. Like... Nobody else, like like even even the classical ones like Photoshop, are now like cloud subscribe model with continuous updates. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this this world where you could you could get away with that abstraction that things didn't change because things changed so infrequently um, is gone. Like like the the I talk to companies now that have three month release cycles, which five years ago would have been like pretty good, and ten years ago would have been amazing. That's now so slow that it's like threatening their business, <laughs> um, and so so that that just general movement, um, and I sort of I bottle it up into I'm I'm still working on like a catchy term for it, but I see it as like like people are moving to continuous deployment or or faster deployments because it's basically getting us to to continuous integration on a world level. Mm-hmm. So you're continuously integrating with the rest of the world all the time, and that's good for everyone mm-hmm. to get changes faster. Uh, so yeah, tangent there. But uh, anything that moves us towards cheaper, faster changes is going to be super, super important for over the next five years. Because like, that is that is the number one problem. And the number two problem is like dealing with all the complexities. But you can't deal with the complexities without fast change, fast integration. Yeah. What? Uh, 
I haven't been looking at this screen for a little while. Yeah, I really like this comment. So, it's always difficult to reason about dynamic configs. More so, when they're merging overlays, need to have tools that will make it opaque. That's one of the places where I really do like the sort of configuration file as what you have, because you get this versioned history of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you could rebuild that sort of, like, you could have, you could have a, like, a static dump in the same way that you do a dump of a database. Right. And that dump would be readable and... Um, per- perhaps that's backed up and checked in and there's an audit history and things right. like that. Well, I was um, talking to Alan Shreve recently. Uh, he wrote NGROC, another Twilio um, which is colleague. Which is the replacement for local tunnel. Yeah. Um, and I was telling him about this tool and he was saying... Uh, what his, so his thoughts about configuration were um, he really wants whatever, wherever it's being stored to be versioned and mm-hmm. being able to roll back versions Absolutely. easily. Absolutely. Um, and so... And I was, you know, talking to, I was like, well, you know, all these, like, etcd uh, console, they actually are versioning it. Like, they actually keep uh, old versions because it's all, like, this, you know, their data stores at a, a, a append-only kind of uh, log. Um, and so, in theory, at least for a while, you do have old versions. And But most of the time, and I tr- tried to look, I don't think console actually lets you look up old versions. Um, but if they did, that would be super useful. useful because if you're putting all your configuration in it, you now have version configuration. Um, so, so Sphere said, yep, Raft. I'm not aware of Raft. Um, I mean, that's, that's the, uh, consensus algorithm. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, oh, oh, it's the replacement for Paxos? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, okay. That's, yeah. Yeah, I did not, I did not dig into that. I really want to, though. Yeah, I think, and maybe if, uh, I'll actually mention to, uh, Armand, uh, at console, uh, as well as, friends with both the etcd and console guys, um, which is frustrating because so are you the are you the like oh oh you're actually like uh, the third wheel in a bad relationship where like the 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 two significant others are like complaining to you about each other mm-hmm. and then you have to be like look I don't want to get in the middle I like both of you I don't yeah that's exactly it that's I, awesome. I was actually in that like as I as I go for con I was like standing between both of them like um. Yeah. Were they both like, you want to head out for beers? And then you're like, oh, you guys. Can't keep Um, putting me through this. So, yeah. So, but it's good. Like, competition is good. Hopefully, they'll influence each other and everything. But, especially open source competition, where it's always a little bit cooperative and everyone, you know, borrows liberally from each other and no offense is taken by that. Um, So, either one, I'll, I'll talk to both of them, but exposing. Uh, like like Spiromax, Spiromax is you know exposing an API to the to the journal would be really cool, especially for configuration, which is like the major use case of a key value store like that, distribute configuration store. So yeah, um, but uh, so yeah, it's really great to see all these kind of new kind of distributed systems ideas come into uh this world. Ooh, something just happened with our video recording setup. It just beeped. Yeah, uh, I was working. So the cool, the, so I was talking about ConfD earlier, and ConfD was actually uh, when I first saw it, I was like, "Oh, cool! It's exactly like this thing that we was getting at Twilio." Um, a colleague of mine, Bulat, who I also got the privilege of working with while contracting there, although nowhere near as much as you did. Yeah, Bulat came in and, and was. Just sort of became the sort of uh, configuration management slash orchestration really guy, guy on the on the 
I team or whatever you want to call it, platform team. And uh, he actually built a CoffD internally at Twilio that was really cool. Um, and uh, tried to get him to open source it. And I, I don't think he was ever able to, or maybe he did, but it was never announced or something. Um, but that's why later outside of Twilio, I was like, oh, great, CoffD. And I'm surprised there aren't more alternatives, which is kind of the whole configurator um, idea. But one of the cool things that um, when I was talking with, with Bulat and he kind of went through... Um, and he was kind of new to all of this too. It's like it's really great to like have smart people first learn about a, a problem because they basically go and they uh, look at the state of everything and they kind of look at it with a fresh perspective and no like baggage of history and like tradition and like you know all these assumptions uh, and they can like break it down pretty clearly. Um, and so he came up with these uh, levels of configuration management, which is kind of this like. Um, uh, increasing levels of um, automation or, or like, you know, if you could break configuration down into like different steps, right? So whereas uh, the first one is you have no configuration management. Well, he even called this level zero. Uh, yeah, level zero. I guess that makes sense, right? No. <laughs> um, uh, and then at the extreme opposite, you have kind of this uh, ideal that everybody talks about where you have like, auto scaling you know that kind of like ideal that everybody talks about and there's like some stuff for but very rarely do people actually auto scaling what else uh auto auto scaling and just basically having any sort of like feedback loop so um i mean he described it in terms of like what the system is capable of so a system that can resolve its own problems right so having that feedback loop in there and having it actually do more of uh at a cluster level um dynamic sort of self it sounds pretty similar to um, like the solve, resolve, dissolve paradigm of uh, Akon. Kind of. I wonder if these things map. I mean, there's the right number of them. But anyway, yeah, I mean, zero after, is ignore the problem. It's perfect. Yeah. Um, uh, the first level is having a single data source, so a single source of truth. Um, a lot of the times uh, in the progression of people getting into this uh, collectively, like, it could be a database. So it's like, oh, go check the database for you know the value for this thing or this configuration file, or maybe even check the file into SVN or, or something like that. It, right? could be, it could be really simple too. Yeah, as a variable in a shell script or something like that. Um, and that's usually configuration about a particular uh, particular application like Nginx. Um, the level after that is when you start getting into the state of the cluster. And so that's like Chef uh, and these tools that are talking about, um, you know, what is the state of the cluster, what machines should be brought online, and, and what are the roles, and having that also in that sort of single uh, source of truth. So it's going from just talking about configuring a particular application, which is what ConfD and Configurator do, and start talking about configura- configuring the cluster. Um, but it's based on the same principle of just having... Uh, state in, in one place. The third level is a little bit more geared towards um, the idea of like orchestration, which is uh, having having that state and having it be aware of um, uh, like policies and dependencies and figuring out you need to run this before that. It's just a little bit more, uh, maybe this is the layer that you would like talk about orchestration. So sort of aware of the interactions between the things that you're managing instead of just aware of the things you're managing. Right, and saying it has to be done in this order. Um, and then uh, the fourth level, which is, again, the highest level, is then having the state of the cluster feedback into what the configuration ought to be. 
And so that's where you get things like auto scaling. So as you see that like, you know, in some form you say this this cluster's under load and you want to scale out and that affects the, the configuration that defines what the cluster should look like, which then changes it, you know. So that and you get into these feedback systems. Um, which again, I think like there's stuff on EC2, there's auto scaling groups and stuff like that, but I don't think that um, a lot of uh, people are either scared or um, they're not, they're like, like, it's really easy to do that for stateless like application servers, but like the hard part is always the databases and stuff like that, right? Yeah. You can't auto, you can't auto scale with just an auto scaling group, yep. just scale a database, right? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. You, you basically could if you wrote your own auto scale for the databases because you can, I don't know if you can actually do a seamless upgrade to a larger instance for your database right now, but you can do a pretty, pretty cheap and quick one on Amazon. Um, our experience with auto scale canvas was where it was like the, it took a while for us to get to the point where it was actually paying off. Where the where we were making more from the from the uh, auto scale than we were before from just ignoring the problem and having too many hosts, mm-hmm. and I think that's one of the problems is that computing is often so cheap that auto scale only makes sense once you cross a fairly significant threshold size. And yeah. in fact, like the the reason we did auto scale was not efficiency. At the end of the day, it was just we wanted to be able to most likely survive a random spike of traffic. Right. But even then. Most of the random spikes of traffic were not too, too random. It was like, oh, we know, like, and is, you, you, the New York Times article manually, and we would do that. Yeah, we'd go into the auto scale and just be like, oh, we want twenty hosts right now yeah. instead of two because we know that we're going to need yeah. roughly five or six, and then we have headroom. Yeah, I think that kind of gets back uh, at you know one of the reasons why it's not as popular is because most people just don't need it. Like, it's it's right. not. Like that four, big of a problem. Four is for better than three, except that if getting to level four costs you more than it's worth, then doing it was stupid. Mm-hmm. And I think for most people that's true. I think for most small companies that's true. Um, even large companies, it really takes it really takes an amount of traffic and scale. Um, I don't know. Did Twilio do auto scale or did they just? Uh, no, it was all manual. Yeah, except that Twilio was weird because they're like, look, reliability matters so much that we can afford to spend three times as much on AWS. And that led to you know having having way intentionally way over provisioned hosts, which gave them so much room that auto scale probably didn't matter that much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that's the other thing is like usually auto scale will then bring you back down from like a burst, so you can like actually be more efficient after. It's not just scaling up, but scaling down. Yep. Um. So that was some insight from the now sort of uh, recovering. So what's your reaction to these levels? Like, is that is that reflect adequately what you're seeing is that well i like that they kind of uh in a way they kind of break down some of the problems like i said like if you have uh the uh, level one where you have a single data source like that's that's one part of the problem so using something like etcd or you know whatever your single source of truth is um that's one part of the problem and then when you go up into cluster state that's now you need to have a way to sort of model or talk about the cluster. That's a, that's a different problem that you can then put into, you know, whatever that single source of truth is, right? And so you can kind of see how you can break down um, uh, the concerns based on these levels, right? For each one, what is added is something, is another problem that can be solved independently. Whereas a lot of what uh, Chef kind of goes up to roughly between two and three, 
I've seen people go to. I've seen people go auto to scaling four. groups. Yeah. yeah, I think I, I think you have to do something else to sort of poke Chef, but maybe not. I mean, I guess it provides you the primitives, and in that sense, it's kind of a good framework in that you can actually use it to you know modify cluster state and have it like EC2 spin up services. Or it's something. not. Yeah, I find that it's not a good place to do auto scale, mm-hmm. um, but I believe it is possible. Yeah, people can do that. people can do anything with software. People will do yeah. all things with the worst possible software. Yep. Um, it's their hammer, right? Uh, so that's, you know, it'd be nice to kind of uh, eliminate uh, these kind of big monolithic. Uh, people have problems with them too, like this, like people had to drop Chef because it doesn't scale, you know. Um, I don't know if, if Puppet's any better, but um, it's it's weird though that. Doesn't scale. I don't know. I, I I'm not a big fan of central server. Sorry, that's you know it's that's a really oh, yeah. It's such un- a, <laughs> yeah, I well, shouldn't have said that. Well, it doesn't scale without actually 2014. Yeah, you know, not to say mm-hmm. horribly mm-hmm. offensive things like that. Um, it's not web scale. <laughs> but I don't know. I don't know. Everywhere that I've done it, like I, my goal has been to do the sort of like a, a shell script pushes the config onto a box, and then the box runs the chef whatever knife whatever whatever you want to call it on that one host that other than for like storing secrets that need to be distributed safely like that method scales out crazy and Mm -hmm. super easy and that's kind of uh i mean that's kind of salt stack does that as well um it's just kind of like pushing it's very uh you know just running commands so what's interesting to me about these levels is like i i obviously come from a very different perspective and and to me, like the the productivity and effectiveness of configuration management for me is driven almost entirely by the configuration management deploy pipeline, which is usually awful. It usually doesn't exist at all. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the things that I see are like, oh, you SSH into one specific box that we all know is dirty, and that that phrase when ops people are like, oh, that's a dirty host and that's a clean one, like that's that's a sign that that you've got an interesting process. Um, and then you manually make changes on a box in production until it works roughly, and then you're like, oh, that's what I want, and then you go build it, and then you just deploy it, and that's that's the, that's the process. Um, and that's so scary to me. Like, I've built out multiple times, um, like, just a simple continuous deployment pipeline. It's not that hard. It's like you check into a place, it gets auto-deployed into a test cluster, automated tests are run against that cluster, Oh, they passed. Great, you deploy it into the real thing. Um, and then what you do locally while you're developing the changes to see if they work is you're deploying locally into a test box. Um, and maybe maybe your deploy process is you run the new rule on one machine to see if it works, right. and then run it on the rest after it after it's guaranteed to work. That pipeline takes like two days to set up. It's not that hard. Uh, I don't know why ops people are so like afraid of that much process between them and and configuration changes because it makes them so safe. It's like you're not going to push out a stupid change that's going to break your cluster because you'll figure it out right away. Yeah. So that, that to me, like when I go in and I look at someone's configuration management, it's like, one, is it all under configuration management? That's, that's like the first problem is that people are like, oh, no, no, no. It's like I manually changed. It's 2014 and I'm manually changing a production machine. Mm-hmm. What the hell? And then, and then problem number two is like, what's your deploy pipeline? Oh, there's nothing. Yeah, it's part of that whole like ops is a different world. It's a different paradigm than the developer. But, not, but it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. Yeah, that's the whole point of DevOps, right? But it still is, even though we're in a world of DevOps. What's your point of DevOps? Right. I feel like DevOps is like, uh, it's like religion. Like, you can have a label, but at the end of the day, it's however you personally define it. 
Yeah. My DevOps is yeah. an idealized DevOps that's true to the original vision. Yeah. Um, yeah, labels. I can't... It's so weird having to talk about, like, labels and the meaning of things. Like, man, it's so weird. Yeah. Are I, I, I mean, I see it over and over and over again. Though, that people just argue and argue and argue, and at the end of the day... What does it mean? No, you're wrong. ...is, like, a definition. Words yeah. are how you define them. You yeah. make any progress if all you do is argue definitions. So, but if we're all aware of it, it's quite, you know, easy. We can qualify something as saying, my DevOps. Um, so, I don't know. I, labels. <laughs> You're drumming again. Sorry. It's so fun. <laughs> it is a little fun. You're drumming again. Um, um, do you want to see if anybody has anything to... Why can't things just mean things? So Daniel's yeah, and well, then and then there's the other side of it where like if you can change what people mean by a term, then you can sort of change how people think. And so like at at some level, labels do matter, but usually when people are arguing over the definition, they're not effective in changing a label, and it's not a useful argument. Yeah, someone described it. I don't know if it was intentional at the time, but like the idea of webhooks was to. One, give it a name so you can talk about it. Like, if, it, if a pattern doesn't have a name, you can't, like... Yep. You can't, like, spread the meme. What, safer worth hypothesis? That, like, your language dictates what yeah. you can think? But you need to, like, have some kind of label to attach to an idea. Uh, and if you don't have a label for it, then you can't even talk about it easily. My personal experience here is, is kind of weird. So, like, I coined continues to blame it, and I defined it as, like, a very specific thing. And then in reaction to that, uh, the, Fowler and Jess Humble and, and the ThoughtWorks people... Sort of evolved. Were, like... Refined uh, it, right? No, they, they, they fucked it up. They're like, okay, that's, that's cool, deploying all the time, but that's crazy. So here's another thing. It's called continuous delivery... And it means not delivering value continuously. It means waiting. It means automating everything, but only pushing the deploy button when you really want to. And so it misses out on all of the benefits. But then what's weird is everyone I meet says continuous delivery, but they mean continuous deploy. They don't see a distinction at all. Mm-hmm. And so they won the, the, the term war, and I won the definition war. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I'm saying war and won and lost, but like at the end of the day, like I'm, I'm friends with Jez. It like is what it is, and that's, you know, it's whatever. Yeah, and I, 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 I see continuous delivery as a way of rebranding continuous deployment to make it more palatable to pitch... And they're a consulting company. That's what they do. They make things more palatable and they pitch yep. them to old, dumb companies. And so if they're able to put some subset of my ideas into a box, um, and my ideas, like, everyone has been doing this for a really long time. If you did it in a way that was more aggressive than anyone else I knew, but people were doing continuous delivery and deployment before that. People were doing it almost at that scale before that. Um, you know, that's why I say I coined it. But they, they took some subset of those ideas and made them palatable. Um, and it's weird to, to be like... To have people ask, like, what's the difference between continuous delivery and continuous deployment? And my go-to answer is, like, practically speaking, nothing. No one, no one cares. The few people who care don't matter at the end of the day. Yeah. Because I don't want to fight a definition more that doesn't matter. Right. And I don't want to fight a term more that's really pedantic. Um, like, continuous delivery is a fine set of words for the concepts that I'm talking about. I call it continuous deployment because, out of respect for, like, Jez and ThoughtWorks, I don't want to... Um, I don't want to steal their term uh, and sort of sort of co-opt it, but but the well, industry is doing that for me. I mean, it's kind of nice that there are, are are two words. 
And the, the thing is, is that like uh, when there's one word, and and I don't necessarily want to say that it's a good thing to come up with tons of labels for things. Uh, you know, you can have too many labels. We have plenty of labels to deal with every day. Um, but uh, one that's sort of so overloaded and so overused. Um, as DevOps? As, as, as DevOps, you kind of have to, whenever you talk about it, kind of explain what do you, what do you mean by that. What's your, what's your version of it? Um, because otherwise you can say, oh, I want to do DevOps, and you say, oh, we're already doing DevOps, and, you're, and you can easily say, no, you're not. Yeah, I like, I like instead, of, instead of using a term like DevOps, I like coming up with other more specific terms, like no yes. well, especially uh, ones with negative yeah. connotations, and then like, like or just, other Or just being able sports. to say specifically what it is or not. So yeah. it's like, oh, we're doing DevOps, and then you, know, you can say something like... Uh, whatever your definition of DevOps is, like, does it include so-and-so? Yeah. Because it doesn't matter whether it's DevOps or not. It's like, are you, what are you, you doing? doing? Yeah, what are you yeah, doing? Yeah. It's like people who are like, we're, we're doing Scrum. And I'm like, okay, so you're doing stand-ups. Mm-hmm. Are you doing retrospectives? Mm-hmm. Do you do work in your, re- like, from, as a result from your retrospectives? Are you learning? How, how quickly is your process evolving? And what I find in the answer is like, no, 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 I know. Yeah. Like, it's, so I, I don't it's like it's like uh, there's good things and bad things. Like when you come up with a label, it's easy for people to just think they understand the label as opposed to all the ideas behind it. Um, so I mean, that's I guess where buzzwords come from. But this is a kind of a meta discussion. But it's something that is kind of a, a big interest because I think about it a lot, and I imagine you do too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean. The buzzword thing. Especially with like, oh man, with meaning like the whole ache off differences Systems. that make a difference in like terms. The, yeah, you, yeah, oh man. Ache off, like his favorite thing is to take like a really common word and give it a hyper specific definition. Overload it with something, which I consider to be useful, but. It can be, but then it's confusing when you're yeah. like, you're talking to someone and they're not hearing the same thing. Yeah. It's weird though, because like the alternative, which is maybe better, is to just um, uh, make up stupid, uh, like the military. Like they have their own language, and it's usually all acronyms, right? Yeah, um, really. And it, but it's very specific. Acronyms. But it's very like it's not open to the wild. Like it's within their organization. So when everybody says, you know, the LQS, you know, everybody knows exactly what they're talking about, which is really important for the sort of efficiency. You know, yeah. direct, you know, command and control type of. It is interesting that Amazon that sort of sort of mirrored that with uh, AWS, where everything has a three-letter acronym, which I don't like. Mm-hmm. Like, it takes a long time just to be able to speak Amazonese, mm-hmm. and and just like, oh, you said S three EC two Route fifty three mm-hmm. ELB, and I know all of those things, and so I know that what you said was connecting a load balancer to a domain name to a whatever, like. That's, that's, if they had just given them like one word names that didn't suck, storage, compute, like, do we really need to call them S3 and EC2? Yeah. I mean, there's all kinds of things. I mean, naming things is a whole, whole thing in itself. Yeah. What, what, what would like, what would, what name would you give to the process of naming things? Oh. Was <laughs> that too specific? Too on the spot? Name, name of Fi. Yeah. No. 
<laughs> Name.fi. Name.io. Oh man, all the new all the new domain names. If you haven't, go to dumb.domains right now. That is a that is a URL. EIE.io. Yeah. Wow, this podcast went downhill in a matter of seconds. Um, well, uh, this is Fear Max said, uh, if you think, yeah, if you think AWS naming is bad, play with OpenStack. Yeah. And, uh, I, there are a couple people in my Twitter timeline, uh, complaining about, uh, Apple releasing Swift and OpenStack Swift sort of yeah, was, competing. Weird. Oh, and go and go, go. go yeah. And go. There's a lot of that is happening more and more and more. And I think it's just a symptom of like everyone's looking for really short, really simple names and you can't, can't not step on someone's toes. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, I don't care. Like, like I'm fine with easy to naming. I'm fine with whatever. Like, yeah. Cause at the end of the day, it's a sim. It's like, for me, it like, who cares? Like on one hand, there's marketing, there's, you know, all that. But at the end of the day, when you're working with it, it's just a symbol. Like it could be anything. Yeah. I mean, Go is practically called Golang. At the end of the day, thanks to Google not being able to Google their own language name. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm sure we could do a whole podcast on, on naming stuff. I spend too much time thinking about names. as I think a lot of people do, and some people are better at it. Some people aren't as good. Some I people spend a lot of time with it. I spent a lot of time trying to think of the name on, on my latest game. But I think regardless, like as long as you spend time thinking about it, because it's important. Mm-hmm. Um, I Envy has a great story there. Yeah. Because uh, what a name. Uh, they hired like a, a brand naming yeah. consulting firm that came with tons of ideas. And like one of the things they were looking for was a short, uh, memorable domain name. And they tried all of these like words that sort of worked. And then they did IMVU and like, Basically, the company was like, eh, we're tired of trying new names. We're going to stick with this one. So, like, it doesn't stand for anything. For years and years and years, the CEO said there was no single correct way to pronounce it. Like, it took a CEO change to get a, like, final clear way of pronouncing it. It It was a very weird name. And a lot of people had these, like, they came up with all these rationalities of why it was like I am view like it's viewing instant messaging or uh, I'm view like I'm viewing something or in view it's crazy it's crazy yeah I you know I envy you that was my favorite oh yeah yeah yeah. I envy you even though it's not none of those were intentional at all yeah but but it like it was not a bad name sort of because of all of that it's weird because it's uh there's different things you're trying to optimize for, you know, if it's a brand, there's a whole bunch of things. If it's like programming and, you know, there's like, on the other hand, sometimes these overlap, like these concerns, they conflict, which is why you you like can never win, you know, really like, um, but, uh, the other thing is it's so, it's way more subjective than people think and changes over time. Like, it's like in view, like if the name, like probably one of the reasons why you kept it is because it was already existed and people knew it was, and it like already made sense. Like it already was there. Right. And if you were having that naming discussion before it was released in the world, it could have ended up differently. But the fact that it was already out there, so there's the change in time and how it existed in the world changed the properties of what is a good name for this thing, right? So it's just super, super difficult. Um, yeah. 
and so important because it's your first impression of everything yeah um so uh i think that's it i think we should wrap it up so our next show is uh friday june 20th Uh, we're skipping a week i'll be in san francisco we're gonna i think we're gonna do a couple more how many we got two months and then uh then we're going to croatia we might do a croatia show i don't know that it will be live that'll be fun and then we'll take probably a month off while I uh, go on my honeymoon. Wait, you haven't done that? Eh, eh. We we like we we got married in South Africa, not on paper, and then we came back and did a court marriage and did like a weekend getaway where I had food poisoning the whole weekend. Mm. It wasn't really a honeymoon. Mm. We called it a mini moon, but uh, but yeah, forty days in Europe. That's pretty solidly into honeymoon territory. I don't know. We we still we talked about doing Thailand and then. <laughs> the political unrest and the coup that wasn't a coup but then it turned out to be a coup and now there's there's a a ban on protesting the government just the government you're allowed to protest just not against the government so yeah not going to Thailand anytime soon oh I know I was looking forward to like a month of cheap time on the beach so but we've got a few more shows before then yeah we should have I think three and four. Uh, if anybody's in San Francisco I'll be there next week for DockerCon. Uh, we're on iTunes now. Oh, yeah. That link is in the, the chat stream. It'll go up onto uh, Systems Live. If you're listening to this, it'll be up. Cool. And we're done. <laughs>